Judson Bottom by Dodge Zelko Chapter 8 Self-Told Legend 1.30 a.m. Herschel Gimby is so larger than life that his bald head stands a few feet taller than the rest of his billboard. He wears a tight denim shirt bursting at the seams, and his forearms are crossed, calling to mind those oversized turkey drumsticks you find at Renaissance fairs. He is like a bearded and tattooed Mr. Clean, and if the town were ever to vote on a mascot, it would be his WWE, uh, WWF in those days, alter ego, Cronus the Cannibal. Floodlights animate his face all throughout the night. He is Zeus, keeping watch over sleeping Cyprus. In some of his famous carpentry commercials from the early aughts, his gimmick was to break two-by-fours over his thigh. He has since given his aging body a respite from such feats and theatrics, but I hear those commercials still get astronomical hits on YouTube. An inert tanker looms large on the train tracks cutting past Quick Trip. The graffiti on it faded to an illegible smudge. A prowling cat darts across my headlights, never in any real peril as I coast along at 20 miles an hour. Every now and then, I'll see the bobbing cherry of a pedestrian walking by, having a smoke. It reminds me how many packs I used to go through on my early beats here in Judson, before I quit, with nothing much else to do but peer up and admire the constellations that were so foreign to Milwaukee skies. Lorraine, the dispatcher tonight, who's been feeding us Twitter gossip about the Dallas sniper rather than venting as per usual about her sister's taste in men, appoints a few units to a noise disturbance way out on Sycamore and XX. An anonymous caller has hinted that underage drinking might be taking place. I happen to know the farmhouses are spaced too far apart in that area for a legitimate noise complaint to be viable. Most likely, it's a nosy and vindictive neighbor who noticed a lot of cars parked in the driveway. Roughly 45 minutes later, Lorraine cuts in again. PBO3, PBO3, you have a possible B&E at 814 North Kensington. Caller is Meredith Strauss. I jerk out of my trance, realizing I'm PBO3 tonight, and snatch the receiver to my mouth. Copy that, 814 North Kensington. I'm about 10 blocks from there now. Lorraine sends me another patrol for backup. However, I know Meredith well. I doubt if there's anyone on the force who doesn't. If she's calling in a burglary, it could very well mean there's nothing worth buying tonight on the home shopping network. I arrive at the Strauss residence, one in a series of homogenous Dutch colonials with elm-shaded curbs and square little lawns. No lamp posts except at the corners. Meredith is still on the line with Lorraine, insisting the intruder has not left her house. Also be warned, Lorraine relays, there's a Bichon. No lights on, as far as I can tell. I watch for a flashlight beam darting behind any of the windows. Impatient with waiting for backup and needing to stretch my legs, I get out, cross the yard, climb the porch, and verify the door is locked, secured, unbroken. Adirondack chairs are set out, one for Meredith and one for company. Large hanging baskets with tentacled flowers obstruct much of the street view. I decide to walk around the house to try and determine a point of entry, if there is one. This entails squeezing between a row of conifers that demarcates the property. In the backyard stands a vinyl tool shed, the kind you can buy disassembled and set up at home. 
hulking like a centerpiece is the stump of a once enormous tree. Perched upon the stump, reminding me of some druid seer's pool, is a stone bird bath. A dim, solitary light shines upstairs behind the curtains. Meredith on the phone, I imagine, quaking beneath her duvet and throw pillows. Otherwise, there are no signs of activity, no impression of forced entry. I'm about to radio in these skeptical observations when my eyes fall on the basement window, or what's left of it. Dispatch, I have a broken window, basement access off the backyard, not very big, only an inch off the ground. I nearly missed it. PBO6 is headed your way. PBO6. That's Stoff Reagan, if I'm not mistaken. I superimpose her proportions over that of the window, finding the math doesn't quite bode well in my head. Tell you what, I suggest. I'll enter through the window, go directly to the front door, and unlock it for backup. Lorraine stalls. Obviously, she and Stoff Reagan can both read between the lines. I would have to advise against that, PBO3. I don't bother responding. There is no other option. I twist the volume knob all the way down on my radio and crouch before the shattered pane, shining my flashlight into the chasm. I find plenty of clutter that could potentially serve as hiding places for would-be assailants, but I take the gamble that no burglar would waste time rooting around in the basement unless they knew something of value was stored there. I push my legs through and inch myself forward, grinding my teeth as jagged remnants of glass bite into my flesh. With half my body outside and my other half dangling inside, blind and vulnerable, I imagine being shot in the ass, or having my legs attacked with a knife or a baseball bat. It feels like dunking a limb into shark-infested water. The touch of concrete under my feet has never been such a relief. I snatch my flashlight out again, and my gun this time. A water pipe drips. Nothing else stirs. With my sight so depreciated, my sense of smell overcompensates, parsing the grout between cinder blocks, moldy cardboard boxes, fuzzy piles of mouse shit, and the slime of incipient mildew. I move toward the stairwell, where its clear door was once attached. Now, only hinges remain. I'm on the third or fourth stair, training my beam upwards, when a woman trapped high above the rafters starts to scream. Not just scream, but yodel fitfully like she has been cornered and mauled by a wild animal. My hair stands on end. It's been years since that happened. The last time was when I approached the tinted windows of a Volvo I recognized as belonging to Bruno's fourth-grade teacher, Mrs. Lancer. Turned out she had stood her husband's pump action between her knees. I bound up the remaining stairs in two impossible leaps, throwing open a door, sweeping my light around in a panic. I'm in the kitchen. The refrigerator door is cracked open, releasing a sliver of incandescence. The hallmark of... what? A forgetful Meredith? Or a famished burglar? The screaming pervades from upstairs, then it trails off, tapering, not ending abruptly. I weave through the house, undoing the deadbolt on the front door, throwing it open in time to find Stoffregen headed up the walk. Her hand flies to her hip, gunslinger style. It's me. I hiss, waving her inside with a flamboyant gesture. She waddles up the porch and we go in search of the staircase, playing our flashlights over portraits and doilies and candelabras, an upright piano, overstuffed furniture dressed in layers of quilts and afghans like half-shed snakeskin. The house stinks of potpourri, vintage perfume, stale candy. 
We finally reached the stairs, climbing off a parlor area in the rear of the house. Treading ahead of Stoffregen, I aimed my beam at the top step, keeping to the margin along the wall. A few creaks are unavoidable. Upstairs I can hear muddled talking, mainly a man's voice, soft but with an urgent vibrato. Now and then, Meredith contributes a whimper. Past a wooden balustrade protecting the corridor from the staircase, we can peer into Meredith's bedroom. Her footboard faces the door. I can't make out the old widow from this angle, but there is a red-haired man, clad in a black shirt and black pants, sitting on the edge of her mattress. He's reciting something, judging by the cadence of his baritone. We proceed to the summit, having stowed our flashlights. I creep beside the jam, eternally grateful this isn't an older house with arthritic joists and floorboards. Once I've ensured the man's back is still to us, I wave Stoffregen through to the other side of the doorway. Meredith's frail white head is propped on a mound of pillows. With her blankets pulled back, she lies there exposed in a thin cotton nightgown. I can tell her teeth aren't in by the way she nervously mashes her lips. The man, mid to late twenties, could credibly be her grandson. He tries to soothe her, muttering in his tonal way, gliding a sort of wand over her thighs like a small sap or billy club. At least, that's what I think at first, until I make out that the object is green and bumpy. A cucumber. Stoffregen and I exchange looks. Police, Police, don't move. We enter together, our glocks leveled at the man's frizzy red mane. Reflexively, he springs to his feet and spins around, still gripping the cucumber, brandishing it like a weapon. He doesn't rush us, thank God. He doesn't register shock, hatred, fear, or any of the customary emotions. It is pure devastation, the look of a child when you confiscate his favorite toy. If he isn't already receiving it, I can read court-ordered psychological treatment in this man's very near future. Drop the vegetable, turn around, and put your hands on your head, Stoffregen tallies. Poor Meredith wails in her bed as he complies, able to stifle it no longer. Actually, Stoff, I think it's a fruit. Shut up! While Stoffregen does the coughing honors, I try my hand at consoling the victim. Meredith won't stop pointing at her closet, crying, Mrs. Trombo, Mrs. Trombo! Then I remember about the Bichon. With an uneasy premonition curdling my guts, I go to the closet in question. After what we've just witnessed, I don't put anything past the brain in that boy's skull. I swing open the door. The loose knob rattles in my hand. Upon a heaped comforter, curled into itself like a snoozing python, lies a little white curly-haired dog. It gazes up at me with a bored expression and wags its tail. Twice. It has been some kind of night. Back at the station, I stand in the green enameled bathroom with my pants and utility belt draped over a sink. I have a handful of cotton balls and a bottle of isopropyl alcohol, cleaning the cuts sustained around my thighs from squeezing through Meredith's basement window. There are a few more on my forearms, like red pencil slashes, none of them too bloody or concerning. Trossin picked a hell of a night to go gambling. Wait until he hears how he forfeited his place in JBPD lore. The case of the invasive cucumber is about as screwball an event as Judson has seen in recent years, with the possible exception of Edgar Thames, the man who can find a fawn in his garage after years of misfortune during open season. His plan was to feed it well, raise it into a buck, 
slaughter the animal point-blank, and show it off to all his competitors. As for the cucumber fetishist, he sits in a holding cell at this very moment, awaiting an interview by yours truly. Something must be in the water, something taking its toll on the underdeveloped brains in Judson Bottom. First Ismail, now this. I remember a few months ago, Valerie fulminating over a memo she had gotten in the mail from Water Utility saying every house built before the 1950s was prone to lead contamination. Hers was erected somewhere in the 1890s, give or take. This came on the heels of headlines out of Flint, Michigan, and Obama declared state of emergency, FEMA intervention, criminal charges filed against city and state personnel, an odious cover-up to falsify lead-leaching statistics in public water. Valerie, an aspiring health nut who buys organic when there's a sale and squeezes in a yoga class once a month to justify the namaste sticker on her sonata, lamented how she was passively allowing her life to be shortened. I should be out picketing the city every minute of every day, she said once, during the sober pillow talk that can follow an emotional eruption. But the fact is, I've got shit to do. None of it's half as important, but somehow it feels more important. The short-term effects are right in front of me. I can't see myself dying of cancer or Alzheimer's right now. I can only see that we're out of kale. I'm due for an oil change. And Twin Peaks was just added to Netflix, which, by the way, is really going to crimp my social life. With my abrasions all swabbed and sterilized, I throw on my pants, belt, and shoes. I leave the bathroom to find the office nearly bare. Fox News still airs on TV and reports the Dallas sniper has been neutralized. Police dispatched a robot transiting a bomb, which, to put it economically, minced the motherfucker into human confetti. From one of the cubicles, I hear a low murmur. Passing by, I lock eyes with the sergeant on duty, Elmo Kofi one of the department relics. He's a recreational yachtsman who's constantly sniffing the dye in his mustache and training his saggy pecs with an elastic band as he struts around the office. Now he sits in the aisle on a wheeled computer chair, addressing someone concealed by the cubicle partition. All I can make out are two white legs bedecked in platform boots and fishnet stockings. Kofi and I trade nods. I go about my business. The holding cells are located through a metal door inset with a small reinforced window. Inside, the walls change to naked cinder block. We have eight cells in total. Typically, they serve as drunk tanks. Tonight, Meredith's intruder is our only tenant, except for a vagrant who is caught sleeping on the steps of Wells Fargo. I come to him, the cucumber boy, second cell on the left. He is seated on a slab bench, head lowered and harnessed in his hands. He carries no ID, so my primary goal is to extract a name. The cell is very dimly lit. I cast an even deeper shadow from where I stand at the bars. Hey, kid. You need anything? Water? Cup of coffee? No answer. This has been the pattern thus far. You know, the sooner you open up, the sooner we figure out where to go from here. Unless, of course, you're comfortable right now. His nose is thin and pointed, at odds with his round face. He has dull blue eyes and patchy red facial hair that looks like it belongs on his arms. His skin is pale, pockmarked, and unhealthy. Nothing about him is especially groomed, from the tattered hems of his black fatigue pants to the greasy aspect of his clownish hair, frayed out over his ears. How do you know Mrs. Strauss? I ask. Miss Strauss, he qualifies in a low, throaty voice. A puberty voice. 
He is younger than I first estimated. Howard died years ago. I don't betray my enthusiasm that he's finally talking. You knew Howard, too? I only heard her talk about him. Where have you heard her talk about him? He replies, I work with Meredith. The ball is rolling now. I happen to know that Meredith, despite being 71 and financially secure, is employed part-time at Herberger's department store in our moribund Fairgate Mall. More of an indoor Olympic track for mall walkers than an actual commercial hub. Besides its keynote feature, the Herbergers, there is a Tex-Mex restaurant, a Hallmark store, and a Shaw's Jewelers. Everything else is a vacant recess, barred off to the public. Empty shelves and dust-covered mannequins evoke a strange sense of apocalypse. I assume Meredith bothers with the place to deter boredom or an overly sedentary lifestyle. As the kid indicated, her husband, Howard, passed away nine years ago after a series of strokes. She has one daughter in Thedensville, a physical therapist named Rebecca. I can't imagine the phone conversation they must be having right now. So she and you are pretty close, I coax him. He mutters something in response. What's that? Speak up, buddy. She's the best thing in my life right now. His voice cracks, and it sounds like a self-conscious kid reciting a weak line of poetry. Why's that? The day I started there, she came up to me right away. She was so warm. She really wants to help people, help them see what's special in themselves. Sounds like you're in love with her. Of course I am, he says. I know what you think, but I'm not... Not what? His voice drops. I'm not some pervert. I didn't call you that. But doesn't it matter to you that she's three times your age? Why should I get hung up on that? I don't know, I shrug, as if surrendering the point. I guess most people would, that's all. Most people don't interest me. Most people are fake and superficial. Why should I apologize for feeling what I feel? She's a grown woman. She's lived a full life and she's loved before. You act like I'm a pedophile, like I've taken advantage of a child. It's an insult to her, you know, acting like just because she's in her 70s she can't think for herself. Wasn't she thinking for herself when she called the police, scared out of her wits, and reported a break-in? I didn't mean to scare her, he winces. I just wanted to show her how I feel. Had you tried telling her? I thought it'd be better to show her. I'm sure if the lights came up, I would see that his face now matches his fiery hair. He knows I can't put the questions off much longer, but I decide to try for a name first. I'm Mickey, by the way, I say. Detective Mickey Fontenelle. He reverts to giving me the silent treatment. And you are? Alistair. With the apt ventriloquism of a moody teen, he somehow manages to speak without opening his mouth. Alistair. I lean in. Alistair what? Padula. Nice to meet you, Alistair Padula. You live in Judson Bottom? Yeah. By process of grueling extraction, I gather that Alistair is 22 years old, lives with a roommate named Roger Medinger, not with his mother as I suspected, dropped out of classes at Lakeshore Technical College, is now scraping together a living at Herberger's, delivering pizzas on the side, and at one point aspired to be a video game designer, but lately feels crushed by existential ennui. Not to mention my own diagnosis of immodest mental impairment, owing to which I feel obliged to remind him time and again that he can request a lawyer. 
he doesn't express interest. I recall the pain on his face when Stafragan and I interceded. Was it aimed at us for curtailing the romance? Was it aimed at Meredith for calling on us to do so? He couldn't even bring himself to look at her afterward. Once reality stomped on his rose-tinted glasses, he saw himself as the others in the room saw him. I'm not without sympathy, because I've had moments like that as well. They come in fits and starts, a sudden out-of-body candor when you realize the sum of all your memories is not history, but self-told legend. Tell me something. I lean against the cell door, just two guys having a chat, except one happens to be behind bars. What was with the cucumber? The practicality of his answer, I must say, is unexpected. Foreplay. I keep my tone free of judgment. Unsolicited foreplay, Alistair. You're treading in some very dangerous waters there. Can't you see that? Though he'd rather look at a dark corner of his cell than at me, I can hear in his tremolo that he's on the brink of tears. Her husband's been dead nine years. I'm a man who's alive and who cares for her. Was it crazy of me to think she might appreciate someone seeing her as more than just a sweet old lady waiting around to die? An actual woman with needs? Want me to answer that honestly? I don't give a damn. A black manic cloud brews over his head, some understanding that he has committed and confessed to sexual assault. A skilled lawyer might have been able to combat those charges, contesting that Alistair's intent with the cucumber was speculative. I wish him good night and leave him to his bench, his bars, and the sibilant snoring of the Wells Fargo hobo. Kofi greets me as I exit the holding cells. His face is always wrenched into a permanent grimace, even when he's supposedly smiling. You got a character in there. I shake my head to convey disbelief. Bit of an odd night for me, too, he admits. Busted up a party on Sycamore Road. Yeah, I heard over the radio. I'm in a hurry to book Padula County, not interested in hearing about Kofi's trivial bust. The department feels suffocating with just him and me stuck here, like a dead zone. We pull up and it's your average party scene. He carries on, blocking my path. The alarm sounds, kids go running. You know, the usual scrimmage. Cornfields everywhere, so that made it easy for them. Anyway, this one girl catches my eye because she's actually running toward me. I can tell she's in distress. I ask her what the matter is. She says she can't find her friend, been looking around the place for about an hour. The friend won't pick up her phone. She seems as sober as you or me, so I take her aside. Get some general information. It's the damnedest craziest thing. What is? This missing friend of hers. I can't pronounce the name, but she goes by Katie. A stone catches in my throat. Glancing at his cubicle, Kofi leans forward and whispers in a heated rush of Listerine. It's the goddamn sister of that little jihadi prick who ran off last week. <laughs>